We are on the second week of our series, Eating is Believing. What a cool phrase that is. Now, have you been taught that in, in your history as a Christian? Anybody been taught that eating is part of being a Christian? I think I saw two hands. Awesome. Okay. I've always been taught that praying is part of believing or, or trusting or fasting or, you know, thinking certain ideas about God, certain doctrines. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then we opened up the service last week with John 6, where Jesus just kind of just shakes our world. And he says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. If you want eternal life, you will eat. And the verb there is not really like consume. It's, it's like chew on because it's going to take a while. Here's kind of awesome imagery, right? Chew on my flesh for a while. If you can't swallow it down, here's some blood. That'll help. Drink it back. Are you uncomfortable yet? You should be. Uh, so we talked about the statement, uh, eat my flesh, last week, and we talked about how Christians are, we are cannibals, you just didn't know it, okay? Um, and this week we're talking about his statement, drink my blood, so we are cannibals and we are what? Vampires. <laughs> That's a tweet right there, right? Okay, you guys are on Twitter, I know, it's, all, it's old, old, Facebook is old, everyone's on Instagram now, or Snapchat. I feel young when I listen to him talk. I feel very old when I listen to her talk. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Snapchat? What is Snapchat? <laughs> oh, I know you don't. You guys didn't have TV for seven years. What were you doing for seven years? <laughs> Silence. He's my father-in-law, so I can mess with him all I want to. <laughs> Silence still. It's okay. It's funny. It's funny. So we talked about the statement, eat my flesh, and that's, oh my goodness, so uncomfortable. And we talked about at the table that it has this effect on us, that the Eucharist, that communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's this, uh, it's the Christian remake um, from the Jewish Passover Seder meal, the Passover meal, where they would, they would take time to remember once a year the way that their God had had saved them. He had kind of, he had brought them from exile. He had, he, he had rescued them from oppression and from death. And, and in that meal, as they would retell the story, they would, they would pass the story down to their children about how this God had taken them from this place, and he, was, he took them to this place. And as they told the story, what they were doing was that they're also preparing themselves to continue living out the story because the story wasn't over. When they would take Passover, it was a way to, to carry this, this ancient story of a God who saved and rescued them. It was a way to give it to the children. But it was also a way in the handing to the children to begin to prepare their minds and hearts to expect the coming of the Messiah. And what's interesting about Passover is that Passover is not a meal that used to be done. It is still done today by Jews. It's still a crucial part of that faith. They are still taking the bread well, and the lamb, and they're still taking this meal, and they're remembering the God who rescued them as they await the one who will rescue them. But we're Christians. We don't take Passover. We take something called Eucharist. It means thanksgiving. 
It comes from the, the phrase where Jesus said, and he broke bread and he gave thanks. And so when we do Eucharist, when we do communion, we're not doing Passover. We're not talking about uh, awaiting a God who might come. We're trying to see who the Messiah is. The difference between Passover and Eucharist is that Eucharist is founded on pointing to who we know is the Savior. We're not waiting for a Messiah. We have our Messiah. When you take Passover, you acknowledge that you have a God who loves you, cares for you, and is coming for you. When you take Eucharist, you acknowledge a God who is coming for you, but you also acknowledge a God who is present with you. Did you catch that? Now, see, that's a, that's a hard thing for us to work with in our, in our, in our brains. The, the branches of Christianity, which I came from, had such an issue with Eucharist. We didn't know how to talk about it. Is it, is it a spiritual thing where it's all symbolism and so like the bread, it's supposed to remind me of the body and the juice reminds me of blood and I take time to remember what Jesus did? Or is it a literal thing? Whenever I actually eat the bread, is it this idea where bread in some way, shape, or form is the body? I'm truly taking part of Christ. I'm, I'm joining myself with it. What is happening at the table? And so for us, most of my tradition, we just don't know what to do with it. So we take it and we kind of put it off to the side a little bit. You know, we talked about last week, you know, I asked you, how does it feel to be a part of a Christian tradition, a branch off the Christian tree, if you would, to be the one branch that is, first of all, the youngest, you're part of the youngest branch of the church, Protestant, evangelical the youngest branch of the church which has ever existed, only a few hundred years old. And you're the only branch of the entire tree, of all the roots and all the branches that have come before you over the last 2,000 years, you're the only branch which doesn't see the table, this meal, as the most central Christian practice that you have. How does that make you feel? We talked about this a little bit. <laughs> In the last four years, I've spent time on my own kind of studying and praying about the, the sacraments, which is baptism and the Eucharist. Foot washing is something, if you throw that in, but no one wants to wash feet. Do you want to wash feet today? No, not you, brother. You ain't touching my feet. Not with those hands. No, you're good. The entire Christian faith feels a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? baptism, someone holds us underwater with the idea that they're actually going to kill a part of us. The old man's dying, the new... Come on, wake up. That's uncomfortable. Okay? We call that assault. When my kid takes my other child and holds them under the water, they get spanked. Okay? But that's how you start being a Christian. That's the first step. And then... Every day after that, we have this practice called Eucharist, where we, we eat flesh and drink blood. Whew. And if that's not too uncomfortable for you, then we start washing feet. People start taking shoes and socks off. Come on, you better, you better make some noise or I'm just going to get worse. I know half of you guys are at Kids Church. You're not that tired yet. I haven't even had my coffee yet, and I have more energy so far. And so we have these things that, that just are uncomfortable. But beyond that, we have these things we do that don't make any sense. 
What is the point of being put underwater? I would like to believe that everyone in this room puts their body underwater at least twice a week. <laughs> okay? I don't care if it's a bath, which isn't getting clean at all, people. You're just bathing in your dirt. Okay? Um, whatever. <laughs> you can keep it. Um, I would like to think that you do that. So what's different from putting your body underwater the way you do every week, hopefully every day, and we'll discuss that. What's different from that in baptism? What's the point? We make this big deal about stale bread and grape juice. You guys don't even get the wine. You don't even get the good stuff here, you know. <sighs> Everyone's like, <sighs> but yet you guys eat three to ten times a day. Any hobbits in the house? Anybody? There we go. Okay. So we have nerds in this church this morning. Is that what we got? Hey, that's okay. I, I can absolutely hang with that. I'm comfortable with that. What's special about this? You're eating bread, bread, which, by the way, you can find much better bread. When you go to lunch, the odds are you have something more tasty than this meal. So what is so special about eating and drinking here that's any different from what you do every single day? Here's one thing that most everyone in this room, including myself, have gotten wrong about Christianity. Christianity is not about information. Christianity is not about answers. Christianity is not about mental assent. Christianity is not even about uh, emotional experience. Uh, Christianity is not about right thinking. Christianity is centered on one word, and you're going to hate this word, mystery. Mystery. Precisely what happens in that water back there when, when that young man went into the water? What, what happened there? I've spent hours and hours in books and debates and discussing with people what really happens in the water. No, this happens, and, you know, they're spiritually regenerated. No, you know, this is, they're actually saved for the first time. Nothing really happens. It's just symbolic. What really happens in the water? We don't have a clue what happens in the water. You don't know, and I don't know. You can't touch it. You can't measure it. can't study it or quantify it. It's mysterious, meaning there is some evidence that it exists, but not enough to fully grasp, to hold it, to really fully understand every side of it. It's called a mystery. What happens when you eat and drink this? Is it just symbolism? Is it just something that, that we look at and it sparks ideas and thoughts in our heads, which sparks emotions, which sparks my, my new behavior? Or is it mystical? Is it spiritual? When I do this, is there some way that the Spirit of God is moving in me to do things which I couldn't experience anywhere else? Or is it both? Or is it nothing? What really happens here? When Jesus says, if you do not partake of this, you have no part in me. Does he really mean that, or is he just kind of being symbolic and meaning something else? The hard thing about Christianity is Christianity is a faith since its inception, which is built on the word mystery. 
I'll translate it. Faith. Oh, okay. I could swallow that word much better than mystery. Much better. Faith. We'll make it even less religious. Trust. How about trust? Does that feel better for you? Do you feel more secure now? It's religion about trust. How about that? Man, mercy. I'm not being that mean today, am I? Am I being mean? If it's a religion about right thinking, you better kiss your butt goodbye. Because there's no way you'll ever rightly think about everything about God and the Scriptures. The more that I study, the more I realize that no one knows. Nobody knows. I've studied enough books to make me want to throw up. Great ideas. Some of them awesome. Some of them just completely ridiculous. Some people are brilliant. Some people are stupid with PhD next to it. I've read all sorts of things. If getting saved is about thinking the right things about God, we are all in trouble. All in trouble. It's hard for me to agree with one other person about one thing. One thing. If I have to agree with that other person about every detail about who God is and how he works in all of history and all creation, oops, that's going to be kind of hard. If the Christian faith is only about imitating the works and life of Jesus, about this self-sacrificial life, I'm going to try my best. But the truth is, at the end of it, I'm going to look pretty sorry in comparison. Would you like to argue that? <laughs> Amen. Thank you, brother. I needed that today. If the Christian faith is about signs, wonders, and miracles, and giftings, and experiences, well, that's awesome. I've experienced as much as most people I've ever met, but guess what? I've also walked away from every one of those experiences the same person. In that moment, it affected me so so powerfully. But the moment I walked away from it, it began to fade. And I needed another one, and then another one, and then another one. The Christian faith is centered on mystery, meaning trusting and hoping. The Christian faith is something that you have to understand you cannot ever fully get your hands on it. It's something that there's always going to be questions. There's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be a demand on us to trust. To trust. And one of the hardest things for us here in modern Christianity is to embrace mystery. The, I think it's been two years I've been playing this series, but thinking about it, researching it, praying about it, and I just kept getting so frustrated because I wanted to come to you this morning and give you one simple, like, okay, when you take Eucharist, this is exactly what happens, okay? This is it. And every time, I just couldn't give you that because this happens, and this happens, and this happens. Sometimes it happens, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it feels bad. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you don't cry. Sometimes... But yet, it's the center. 
It centered us on, on who Christ is and what he accomplished and what he's going to accomplish. Now, I want to explain this some more. I want to explain this. I want you to understand that this is a meal that connects us. It's a practice that connects us beyond this room, beyond our personal lives. The first thing it does, it connects us to a story. If you read the Bible, you understand that there's one major overarching story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is this. It's God's pursuit to have a people. If you like to translate that, it's, it's God's desire to have a family. And from the garden forward, you see this pursuit of God to have people and to bring them into his fold for one purpose, and that is for relationship. And so we see this, this failure which takes place in the garden. They eat something they shouldn't eat. That's a hint for something we're going to talk about later. Why is a meal important? Why are we going to eat anything? What's spiritual about a meal? Well, if eating something could mess everything up, maybe eating something can fix some things. Do you see it? Ooh. Okay. All right. Now we're getting somewhere, right? And so we see this overarching story where God, he, he goes and he creates this covenant with, with Abraham, and then we have Israel, and then we see all the things Israel goes through. And this, and this major call to Israel was, if you would just be the people that I know you could be, the entire world would see it and they would come to me. That's the Old Testament promise and plan with the people of God. If they would just be who God called them to be, the entire world would be changed. And of course, this doesn't work, and these things continue to fail, and there's different attempts and different plans, different strategies, and then we see the answer. And then we have this man who comes, and Jesus, who is, he represents not only Israel and the promise that they have, but he goes all of it. He represents all of mankind. And his entire mission is not only to undo what was done with the first man, the first woman, his mission is, is to not only undo, but to initiate, to not only fix what was broken, but to start something completely new. And of course, this man comes, and as he's having his final meal, his final lesson, his final explanation to his disciples, he does what? He eats with them. He chooses to eat with them the one meal that was the most sacred meal to all Jews, the Passover meal. And he takes that meal, and he flips the understanding on its head. And what's happening for us is that you have to understand that this meal, this practice, is not just something we do for me. It's not just something I do to experience this or, or to, to, to be encouraged in my week or something like that. This is the meal that connects us. This is the meal that connects us all the way back. And here's why. As Christians, we're called to be witnesses, Correct? We're witnesses. It's like seeing an accident, right? <laughs> you saw what happened. You're a witness to the incident, to the, to the occurrence, the happening that happened. You are a witness to what happened. And so people can come to you and you can share the story with them. Well, the problem is, is that we weren't around when it happened, right? When Jesus happened. So what they have is this thing called succession. The idea is that there has to be a way for us to have the same authority, if you would, for people to believe us the same way that they would believe the first apostles. So there has to be something that connects Jesus to the apostles, to the ancient church 2,000 years later and connects to us. There has to be something that's the same. Something has to connect us. Well, maybe language could connect us. Do we speak the same language? 
Okay. Maybe culture could connect us. How about culture? Everyone's like, quit playing around. Just, just tell us. <laughs> how, about, how about the same worship? I'm pretty sure that Paul could shred the electric guitar. <laughs> right? What about the same Bible? Because we all know that Paul had the same scriptures that we have. Uh-oh. I can't connect that either. Hmm. Here's a challenge for you. The most Christian thing that you will do all week is Eucharist. I love worship music. Right, honey? She's the worship director. Okay. I, I, this is great. It's awesome. Okay? It's, it's, it's terrific. Um, I've been to many churches that just make you just want to run home. Okay? It's amazing. But this is not necessarily Christian. Correct? Is singing something that is unique to Christianity? It's guitar, strumming, rhythm, chords. What about singing and worshiping something or someone? Is that uniquely Christian? Absolutely not. What about sacred texts? Do you know how many weird cults and religions that we share the same sacred texts with? The Bible? How about preaching and sermons? TED Talks are Christian. Everyone's like, TED Talks? What are you talking about? sermonizing, preaching. It was done long before Christianity ever existed. Long before. Did you know baptizing is not even Christian? It was done long before Christianity. Long before. Fasting is done in all sorts of different uh, religions. Prayer is done in all sorts of different religions. But you know something that isn't? The Eucharist. It isn't. Would you like to know why? Because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I believe that I have a Savior, and this Messiah is going to save the entire world. He's not here right now, but he was alive, and he is coming back. Really, what's your proof? And I believe when I eat the bread and I drink the juice, the, the Welch's juice from Walmart, that somehow I am connected Connected to him and connected to every Christian who ever came. And somehow he's here whenever I do that. And people look at you and go, doesn't make a lot of sense. In Roman culture, one of the most unique things about Christianity was this practice. They truly believed that Christians were cannibalistic. They were confused. What is with this Jewish cult of people who insist on eating this meal and believe that somehow a presence of God is with them when they eat this meal? What is that about? These people are peculiar. They're different. They don't fit among us. What's amazing, some of my sermons, my, some of them, I could maybe do a tech talk with. You know, and, and people wouldn't think, Oh, that's so weird and peculiar, his preaching, his 
lesson he gives us, information. They wouldn't think that. There are certain songs that this team does that we could put out in the world and they think, oh, that's pretty good. I like that. But you can't take bread and juice to go, no, it's flesh and it's blood. Really, guys, that's all it is. You can't do that and people go, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. Awesome. Pass the flesh. Wake up. Pass the flesh. It doesn't work that way. It's ridiculous. It's it's illogical. This is a practice that connects us to a story and to people that came long before us. When we take this, this meal, we're taking it at the same moment in history that hundreds and thousands of Christians all over the globe are doing simultaneously today. And as we all do it together, we're doing it with the same purpose. We're all doing it to stand as witnesses and to take this peculiar, silly-looking practice and say, this is what it means to tell the world that God is coming back and he's going to do a new thing. And what he's going to do is going to look just like this bread and this juice. See, the bread and the juice transcends language, transcends history, transcends culture, transcends differences and how we do worship transcends differences and how we think about God. It is one practice that if we embrace it, connects us to God and to the church and to the future. All at the same time. And, you, and your brain goes, because it's a mystery. It doesn't make complete sense. And it's not really supposed to. The Eucharist is going to be the most Christian thing you do all week. There are plenty of nice people doing nice things, helping people, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor. That is crucial. There there are plenty of smart people talking about God and deities and all sorts of awesome things, all sorts of great ideas and philosophies and theories. They're everywhere. That's not distinct. There are all sorts of people who can do signs and wonders. Did you even know that? Healings, miracles, prophecy, these show up in all different religions. All different religions. And they have amazing stuff that they can do. You're not the only one. But Eucharist, this foolish thing, nobody else wants that. You can, you can keep that. I'm all full on flesh and blood for the day. I'm good. I have my fill. It's the most Christian thing you will do all week long. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> it's, a long, it's a long section to read. If you, guys, if you guys have time, I encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter. It's crucial to have context. What Peter's laying down, he's talking about the significance of Christ, and and how he affects the world. And he uses one of the ancient Jewish texts, which calls Jesus the cornerstone. And it's the stone that God is going to use to build his household, this place where his family resides. He's going to use this rock, this first piece, that's going to cause people to trip over it. They're not going to be able to get past it. 
And we've talked about how Christ is the power and wisdom of God, meaning it's, it's his, cho- his choice to redeem the world this way shows how powerful and wise he is, but it's God's plan and choice to choose Jesus, which also looks like weakness and foolishness to the world, meaning only someone who can see inside the mystery actually sees a man dying on the cross as victorious. Correct? Again, that's a pretty stupid claim. My God's more powerful than yours. He died. Pretty silly. Oh, and then he rose again. How's that help you? It will. How do you know? I believe it. Yeah. Come on, that's silly. You only don't think it's silly because you're surrounded by other people who, who believe it too. When you get around people who don't believe it, you go, oh my goodness, that's, that's foolishness. The most powerful being in all the world was defeated. But to us, he wasn't defeated. And of course, the way that he asks us to enter in to this victory is with ordinary bread and ordinary juice. Again, to us we say, oh, it's sacred and special. But to anyone else, they say, that's foolish. Are you seeing connections? Boy, guys, we like call the hogs today. Is that what we're gonna do? Everyone's like, "No, I'm so nervous. We're gonna lose." And so he talks about the effect that Christ has on both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, here in uh, the bottom of verse eight, he says, "They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for." That's a loaded sermon. I'll give some other day. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And there's so much already in there, but pay attention to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Do you see that? What did I tell you the overarching story from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation is? It's God having a people. And what is it that allows us to be part of this people? It's the the ones who are the people of God are the ones who have not allowed the foolishness, the illogical nature of Christ crucified to cause them to stop. We're the ones who see it and embrace it. We're the ones that go, this is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. I don't have proof, but I'm going to embrace it anyway. This is the door into being part of the people of God. Embracing Christ crucified. Foolishness to Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews. Everyone who gets through this door is a part of this family. So this morning, as we're talking about the, the Eucharist, about this meal, I kind of want to hone in some more now on the drink, on the wine, on the juice, on the blood. I want to talk more about what the symbolism is in this. And so we were talking this morning, uh, we started this morning with uh, Ephesians 2. And if you guys would go uh, with me back to Ephesians 2, I, w- I want to focus on a few things here we see. Ephesians 2, verse uh, thir- uh, 12, we'll start at 12. 
Remembering that at times you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus you were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. Understand that for Jews there's only two groups. Okay, for us there's all sorts of, you know, ethnicities and religions, but for Jews, there's only two groups. There are Jews and everyone else. Jews and non-Jews. Now, in this context, they're focusing on Jews and Gentiles. They're talking about what God has done, especially in the inclusion of people who were once outside and bringing them in. Now, this is such an important concept that I, I want you to understand. One of the first things that we are doing with the juice, when you take this juice, you're taking this this covenant, this new covenant, meaning this new agreement, this new relationship with God as you drink this juice. But I want you to understand that in this wine, in this, in this drink, what you are really doing is this. You are taking, you are allowing yourself to be swallowed up into a new bloodline. Now, when you say you are family, you're, oh, oh I'm sorry, we're in Arkansas. When you're kin, right? When you're kin, okay, we're, we're, we're talking about family trees. We're, we're talking about bloodlines, okay? So you got bloodlines that go back to, you know, to your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and all the ways they married and, you know, and intermingled. And so it's talking about blood. That person's my blood. They're my family. They're my kin. To be family is different from friends, correct? It's a different relation. I relate to this person differently. I'm connected to this person by something that is even outside of, of how I see them or I like them or dislike them or if they're my friends or not, if they help me or not. I'm connected to this person by blood. And we don't have time to open everything, but one of the most powerful things in the Gospels is the first couple chapters where you see the genealogies. To the synoptics start with the genealogies, and you see the importance of bloodlines. What's happening with the spilling out of the blood is we're creating this new family, this new encirclement. And I wish we had like 100 weeks to talk about all this. The idea is to draw a circle around something, to, to set something apart. And it's blood which is sacred and holy and powerful enough to put something and separate it from everything else. And in the blood of Jesus, we are accepting a new bloodline. Does that make sense? Okay. A new bloodline. And with this new bloodline comes a new what? A new family. A new people. And to embrace this means that I'm embracing something that God is bringing me into. I'm becoming part of something I wasn't a part of before. So what we have in the drink, the drink, it's a drink of participation. Meaning, when I choose to take this drink, I'm choosing to step into something that I was previously on the outside of. And the first thing we do is we participate in a new family. What I do whenever I take this cup, I am allowing myself to be brought in by the work of Christ into a new family, a new arrangement, a new home. Now, here's what this means. And I'm not sure if you all have, who comes from, uh, I'd say, some tight-knit family? Anyone come from a really close family? Like, like blood means something. Okay. 
Lots of my family has blood from everywhere. We're just a mixture of everything. So we're kind of, eh, I'm sure we're related to you somehow. <laughs> Some bloodlines mean a lot. Ever um, heard the term that blood is thicker than water? It's the idea that this family bond trumps other bonds. My allegiance to my family, this, this blood connection, is what is stronger than my connection to other places. Now, this theme is consistent in the Scriptures, that in accepting this new family of God, this bond is now stronger than my bond outside of it. I used to have my family, it was my friends, or it was my co-workers, or it was my nation. There's all these other connections we have in the world, right? These people are the same race as me. These people have the same income as me. These people, you know, have the same hobbies as me. These people have the same nation as I do. There's all these different connections that we have, right? Who's seen Rocky uh, IV? Drago? Russia? Okay. When you're watching that, were you going, Go, Drago! I love Russia. Go USSR. Okay. How many Russians do you actually know? Probably not too many, right? But you know they're just bad. <laughs> Correct? Those Russians are the worst. Blah. Drago. They're all shooting up steroids and blonde and really tall, right? Come on, it's silly, but yes. And in America, we're short, but we're stout and tough like Rocky. <laughs> you think this is silly. This is exactly the connections that make you love the movie or hate the movie, whatever. It's silly, but this is exactly what's going on. Oh, we're the underdog. We're going to get them. Russia's got all that money. America's poor. You know, what? These bad guys, they want bad things. Ooh, they got snow everywhere. <laughs> And you just know that Rocky has to win because we got to beat those people, those stinking Russians. we got to beat them. Man. How about this? When you watch the Olympics, okay, uh, who watched the gymnastics? Okay, how, how often do you watch it outside of the Olympics? Mm, right? And you just know that, 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 that oh, that those stupid Chinese are cheating. <laughs> right? They don't even have lives. Like, they're like locked up in gyms. They just have to do flips like all day long. That's why they're going to win, you know? <laughs> you think, okay, it's in there. It's in there. Well, if we were terrible to our people too, we'd win. And you just have this, again, there's this bond you have. I'm an American. And because I had this bond with this person, mm, to everybody else, right? Well, the concept of the blood of Jesus is that, that God would finally get his family. And that for us to, to embrace this, this new family, as we embrace the cup, as we embrace the work of the blood of Jesus, we are now taking a new bond, a new connection, which is stronger than any other bond in our lives. I now, to anyone else who takes this cup, I am now devoted and connected in a way I'm not connected to anyone else on the outside. This bond is stronger than my bond anywhere else. You say, well, Devin, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Absolutely. 
But the sign of the church is the way that we what? We love the world? The way that we love one another. And you go, oh darn, we're all in trouble. That bond is not very strong. That's why this is important. When we take the meal, we are being reminded. We are reliving this, this story, this move and plan of God that goes back thousands of years, goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. This meal is supposed to embody it, meaning it's, it's, almost, it's a way of learning without all the books and thousands of years of study and sermons. This practice is supposed to wash over us every time we do it, to remind us, this is who I am. This is what matters in life. This is who these people are. This is what I'm a part of. And that is why the Eucharist is to be the central part of, of what it means to be a Christian. Because it's supposed to communicate to us, to embed in us, how we see Jesus, how we see God, how we see our brother and sister, how we see our neighbor, and how we see the world. It's supposed to do for us what thousands of hours of sermons and worship songs could never do. There is something about this meal which is ordinary and physical and tactile, but then there's something about this meal that's supernatural and spiritual and mysterious. And it's all of this, all at the same time. And so it's participation in a new family, but it's also participation in a new you. When you take the cup, you are embracing the work of the cross, right? We talk about remembering the blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross for our sins. But what this is really doing at the same time, what we are doing is we are allowing ourselves to be open to this new creation of God. I can't hit that word enough. New creation. One thing that separates the church and Christianity is that we are to be a people who value the body. Now, when I say that, I mean literal. I'm, not, I'm talking physical, uh, figurative. We are not a religion that is trying to ascend out. We are not a religion that's trying to escape the earth. We're not a religion that's trying to run away. We are a religion that believes that God is not done yet with me, with you, with the earth, with the planet, with creation, he's not going to do something completely new. He's going to take what was old and make it new. Do you see that? And so what we do to remind ourselves this is we take some of the most natural, earthy, simplistic elements we have. Grain and grape. Things that are Simple, eating, drinking. And we take this and we do a physical action. It's not just a spiritual thing where we, you know, we close our eyes and somehow our spirit connects his spirit and we just kind of, you know, visualize it in our mind. We eat and we drink. And it does connect our spirit. It does connect our mind. But it also connects our bodies. Because as we do this, we are supposed to see the newness in our family, the newness in us, the newness in the person next to us. 
In some way, shape, or form, when I take this meal, I'm looking at the person who's taking it with me, and I'm trying to see a new creation in them. I'm not seeing the jerk who just annoyed me five minutes ago. I'm seeing what God is doing in them. It's not done yet, but he's starting something new in them. And I take this, and I realize as God is doing something new in you, he's doing something new in me as well. We're a part of this. And as we take this, this cup, we're also participating in the new world. What that means is I'm not only allowing God to bring me into a new family. I'm not only allowing him to do something in me and in you. I am now going to participate in what God is doing in the world. Meaning I'm not only being placed in the garden to eat and drink. I'm not only, you know, Adam and Eve aren't just placed there for pleasure. Adam and Eve are placed there for pleasure and for stewardship. So now, not only am I a part of enjoying what God is doing, now I'm a part of doing what God is doing in the world. And so whenever I take the bread and juice, I'm not just embracing what God has done in me and in you. I'm now embracing that part of my life is to take the the broken body and the blood that was shed and the new creation life that's going to come from that. And I'm letting God take what was started on the cross and continue it through me. I am now an, a vessel that is being used to take the new life and the new hope of this meal, and I'm taking it into the world. I am participating in the recreation of the world. Yeah, glory. This week, I apologize this morning. As, as I'm talking this morning, I'm here in my head, I'm going, this is really confusing stuff. I don't know if I understand this. And I keep going, but it's mystery. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Here's the truth. We will spend years working this out. But there will always be mystery at the heart of it. There will always be faith. There will always be trust. There's always going to be a little bit of vulnerability, childlikeness in the way that we have to embrace this. It's amazing with children how it's not hard for them to embrace mystery. The world still has a little bit of a, a shimmer, a little bit of a, a, a beauty to it, a little bit of a, there's new things to be experienced for, ch- for children. It's easy for them to believe in mystery and, and story and, and hope. But you take an adult, someone who's already tasted of this world, right? It's not that special. I've had better bread than that. That juice is stale. I'd rather have wine. <laughs> you know, it's so easy for a child, for you to tell a child, yes, you know, when we eat this meal, Jesus is here with us. But for us, it takes a little extra work. And the work for us is not figuring it out. The work for us is embracing it no matter what. One of the biggest things about Jesus as he teaches on this meal, understand this, his disciples had no clue what he's talking about. Read the following uh, chapters in the, uh, in the Gospels. His disciples are constantly asking about, what are you talking about? What is this new covenant? What is this new blood? Why are we going to eat your flesh? Does it make any sense to us? And the biggest thing for us this morning is, I want you to understand that, that we need to be willing to embrace the mystery of God meaning there are things that he is doing and he is at work doing in us. It's not our job to understand it all. It's our job to be open to it all.
And so this meal is not something that we only do in memory. This meal is something that connects us to the past, connects us to the church, connects us all the way to Christ in the past. It's also something which in the present connects us to God, meaning Christ, His presence shows up. How? We don't know. Sometimes there might be a miracle. Sometimes there might be emotion. Sometimes tears. Sometimes feelings. Sometimes who knows what. And sometimes it might feel ordinary. But that's part of embracing the mystery of it. And in some way, participating in this with you is connecting us to the future, meaning what God is bringing the entire world into. He is reconciling all the world to himself in some way participating and allowing ourselves to vulnerably come and to do something so foolish, not even fully knowing how it's going to work or what it's doing, this is allowing us to take a step in a place that we can never find with our eyes open. Would you stand with me this morning? In the faith traditions that I grew up in, we, we had a lot of really interesting experiences, whether it was prayer or prophecy or people being prayed for, and some of it was awesome you know, and real, some of it was fake. But what's interesting in all of that was I, I never felt like I didn't have an answer or didn't understand what was supposed to happen. I always felt like there's a little bit of a, okay, here's how it all fits together. What's funny is the more that I've tried to embrace the historic practices of the church, the more I found myself confused, the more mystery, the more I've just found myself going, what are you doing in this, God? What is the point of this? But in this practice, I've noticed in myself, there's two major things that it does for me. One it stabilizes me. It's almost like when I find myself allowing God to work through the Eucharist, the, the Lord's table, communion, it's almost like it centers me. It's almost like putting down an anchor, you know? It's something that I know as I do this, I am doing something that Christians in the church have been doing for 2,000 years. I'm doing something which isn't new. It's not brand new. It's not cutting edge. It's not, it's, I'm doing something that is old and ancient. It's tested, and it's true. And it's something that when I do this, I'm not doing it alone. I'm connected to everyone in this room, connected to everyone who's doing it across the globe. I'm connected to everyone who's ever done it in all of history. And the second thing it does for me, after it stabilizes me, I notice it opens me up to God, to you. There's a moment there when we have the the bread and juice, and you kind of see everybody around. And there's this moment where it just makes you so much more aware of this and of whatever it is that he's doing in that moment.